<laughs> All right. Yo, it's that time of week again. You know what time I'm talking about. It's time for another scripture study. Ooh, this one, this is probably going to be one of my favorite scripture studies that I've done because the Bible is just so cool. It's so cool. And I can't wait to show y'all some of the cool stuff I came across in the book of Romans. Let me just say, I I haven't completed my full study of the book of Romans yet because let me be honest, it's complex. Okay. Paul, I don't know what Paul was on, but this dude was spitting some heat in every single chapter. But I would have to say that Romans is probably my favorite book of the Bible. Absolutely favorite. I love it, love it, love it. And we're going to be going over Romans for probably the next three, four weeks, to be completely honest with you, because Paul just be, I don't know, he just be spitting heat. But we're going to be going over Romans chapter four today, and we're going to do the first half of it from verses one through 15. And before we we hop into this passage, we need to first understand some context. We need to understand who Paul is speaking to and why he's speaking to them. Because if we don't understand this, then the entire book of Romans will not make any sense. Or you might misinterpret what Paul is trying to get at if we don't understand who he's talking to. So Paul is is writing to a group of house churches in Rome. And at this point in time, they find themselves in an interesting situation. So they originally had both Jewish and non-Jewish, so Gentiles, uh, believers in these Roman house churches. And everything was going smooth, but we learn that in Acts chapter 18, verse 2, we learn that at some point, the emperor Claudius of Rome at that time had expelled all the Jews, kicked them out, just completely kicked out all the Jews from Rome. And it wasn't until he had died about five to six years later that some of these Messianic Jews started to return back to these house churches in Rome, but they didn't come back to the same churches that they left. The The churches that they came back to in the, the um, Christian community that they came back to was no longer in the same situation as when they left it. See, what had happened was that since all of the Jews got kicked out of Rome, the Roman church, the Christian community in Rome really started to adopt a, a Gentile culture. And to the Jewish believers, this completely threw them off guard. And it caused a, a, a clash between the Gentile and the Jewish believers. Why? Why? Why, why is this such a big deal? Because for the Jewish believers, they had the law of Moses. That was how they governed themselves for centuries and centuries before Jesus came on the scene. And so the way that they, that they showed that they were devout and that they were um, dedicated to God was by following the law of Moses. So you have things like circumcision and the Sabbath and uh, specific foods to eat and the way that you're supposed to to worship and dress and, and all of these things that was in the law of Moses. That's what the Jewish people did. But they came back to find that these Gentile believers 
obviously weren't following that because they did not receive the law like these Jewish believers. So there was there was some division going on, some disagreements. You had the Jewish believers saying, hey, yo, y'all, y'all got to observe Sabbath. Y'all got to be circumcised. Y- y'all can't be eating these types of foods you be eating. And so there was a divide in the Christian churches in Rome. And Paul uses a brilliant tactic to try and convince these Jewish believers that the New Testament teaching is in line with the Old Testament teaching. And he does this by quoting Old Testament scriptures and stories to make his point. And so what Paul really focuses on in in chapter 4 is he is addressing the fact that faith in Jesus is the only thing required for salvation. It's the only thing that is required to be right with God. It's not the law. It's not doing works of the law. It's not observing the Sabbath or eating certain foods or being circumcised. No, no, no. Paul is going to address the fact that the only thing that matters for salvation and being justified in the eyes of God is faith in Jesus. So this is the question that will be answered for the believers in Rome. And that question is, is faith enough? Is faith enough? So let's go ahead and hop into this. In verse 1, Paul is, Paul is about to, oof, I, I can't wait to share this with y'all. So verse 1, Abraham was, humanly speaking, the founder of our Jewish nation. What did he discover about being made right with God? If his good deeds had made him acceptable to God, he would have had something to boast about. But that was not God's way. For the scriptures tell us, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of faith. Okay, so right off the bat, we we can tell that Paul is speaking mostly to the Jewish believers. Because in verse 1, he says, yo, look, Abraham was the founder of our Jewish nation. So he's, he's directing this towards the Jewish believers. And right off the rip, Paul is challenging this idea that they have that justification comes from following the law and doing works of the law. And so what Paul does is he uses his patented tactic to support his New Testament theology of of Jesus. And he uses the Old Testament stories and Old Testament scripture to support his New Testament teaching. And so when he said in verse 3 that Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He is quoting directly from Genesis 15. And I want to read this passage because Paul doesn't just, you know, pick this out of scripture just to, you know, support his stuff. No, no, he's very intentional as to the reasons why he picks out this particular quote in the story that goes with it. So let's check out Genesis 15 real quick. And we're going to start in verse 1. So sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, don't be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you, since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own. So one of my servants will be my heir. But then the Lord said to him, no. Your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. 
And here's where Paul quotes Genesis 15. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. I love that Paul used this to make his point. I love it for a few reasons. One of the most, um, I guess, relevant reasons that pops out at me is how Abraham's faith is being applied. You know, because I don't know about you, but at least in my life, sometimes the idea of faith, as it seems to be more commonly portrayed, seems really hard to be able to do right. It seems really hard to be able to do faith right. Like, does anybody else feel that way? Where it feels like you always have to be 100% perfectly trusting in God. Like you can never have any doubts. Like you can never waver. Like you can never mess up. It feels almost like if you do not have perfect unwavering faith 24-7, that you will not be just in the eyes of God. That's how faith can feel like sometimes. But I love that Paul uses this story of Abraham as his example of faith that led to righteousness. Because Abraham's faith was not rock solid perfect. It was not perfect or unwavering. He did not um, walk a mistakeless life. And knowing all of that, Abraham was still counted as righteous. And you might say, what do you mean? Like, he clearly had solid faith in God. Like, you know, God said, yo, I'm going to give you a son, and these are all the descendants you're going to have. And Abraham was like, oh, bet, cool. You know, it seems like Abraham's faith was perfect. But look what happens in the very next verse. This is why I like uh, why Paul used this as an example. Look what happens in verse 7. This is right after we hear that Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteous. Watch how Abraham exercises his faith one more time. Check this out. Verse seven. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. Okay, cool. Like God's like, yo, I brought you out of this land and I'm going to give you this land as your possession. But look how Abraham replies in verse eight. He says, oh, sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? The very next thing that Abraham does after we're told that he's counted as righteous is he questions God because he's unsure that what God promised would happen. This is what I'm trying to get you to see. And I think this is what Paul was alluding to is that you are allowed to have questions and wonder. You do not have to be perfect like the law requires. You can be an unperfect human being and still put your faith in God and still be righteous in the eyes of God. It's the saving grace of Jesus Christ that covers us in our moments of doubt. And Abraham put his faith in Jesus, and that's why he was counted as righteous. Wait, what? <laughs> I want to make sure this wasn't a typo on my on my script. Abraham put his faith in Jesus. So he was counted as righteous. Hold up. How, how could Abraham put his faith in Jesus if Jesus ain't come for a thousand years later? What? This is where y'all, ooh, this is where I told you that Romans is so dope and that the Bible is so cool. This is where the Trinity 
the doctrine of the Trinity happens in full force in a narrative. And it is so cool. Check this out. So where does Abraham's righteousness come from? Where does righteousness in general come from? Well, it's a good thing that our boy Paul lets us know where righteousness come from in a few other letters that he wrote. So let's check out 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. This is what Paul is going to say about righteousness. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Here it is. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is Paul saying? That the way that we become the righteousness of God is through Jesus. It's not by works. It's not by following the law. It's not by doing good deeds. We become righteous with God through Jesus. And I got more evidence for you. Check out Philippians 1 verses 9 through 11. Here's Paul again, my boy spitting. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Here it is filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through where that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So once again, Paul is letting us know without any type of uh, doubt that righteousness comes through Jesus. Righteousness comes through Jesus. So how can Abraham be righteous if righteousness comes through Jesus? Was Paul just was Paul just missing some stuff? Was he just leaving out um, some other ways that we can become righteous other than faith in Jesus? No, no, no. Look, <laughs> this is why I love the Bible. Check out Galatians 3. Verses eight through nine. This our boy Paul again. He says, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. This is why the Bible is so cool. Paul just clued us in on the fact that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. Abraham was preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is so dope. That is so cool. And this just enforces that doctrine of the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct people, but they are all one as well. Abraham, from from what Paul has told us in these three different letters, Abraham was putting his faith in Jesus. And because of that, he was counted as righteous because he put his faith in Jesus. Oh, the Bible is so cool. Okay, okay. I got to hop off that because I could go all night. So on to verse four, he says, when people work, their wages are not a gift, but something they have earned. But people are counted as righteous, not because of their works, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. You know, we should be thankful that salvation and righteousness is not predicated on our works. And here's why. Here's why. The first reason why is because we could never earn righteousness if it was predicated on our works. Especially for the Jews that Paul is talking to here under the law, they had over six, they had 613 laws. 613 laws. Can I tell you that 
it's impossible for them to follow those laws. What one kind of cool little uh, setup that the scripture gives us as far as the ability for human beings to follow the laws of God and, and the um the moral the moral guidelines you could say that God gives it is found in Genesis in Adam and Eve. See, Adam and Eve were in a perfect situation. Perfect. They had the food. They they had they had a shelter. They was walking in the garden with God. I don't know what else you could ever want. They wasn't going to die like my dudes were chilling. They were in the best circumstances that a human being could be in. And all they had to do was follow one law. And that was to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In perfect circumstances, literally in God's presence, Adam and Eve were unable in perfect circumstances to follow one law. So how can a Jewish believer or Israelites expect to fully be able to be found righteous by following 613 laws in imperfect circumstances surrounded by other cultures that were tempting them to break those laws? This is what Paul is trying to get them to see. That you are not counted as righteous because of your works. You can't be. It's impossible. If two human beings were in a perfect circumstance, in a perfect situation, and they couldn't even follow one, what makes you think that you can be justified by trying to follow 613 in imperfect circumstances? So that's the first reason. Second reason is that if we could, right, imagine if somehow we could follow the law to a T and be found righteous by our works, how will we treat God then? We would treat God as a vending machine that, would, that, that was supposed to be giving us what we quote-unquote earned because we followed all the laws perfectly. That's why Paul is emphasizing that righteousness is found through faith in God who forgives sinners, not by our own works. And he continues on in verse 6, and he gives us another Old Testament um, example to make his New Testament theological point. And this is in uh, verse 6. He says, David also spoke of this when he described the happiness of those who are declared righteous without working for it. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sins are put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. So once again, he's quoting an Old Testament scripture, Psalm 32. That's what he's quoting, verses 1 through 2. And he's doing this for a very specific reason. He is doing this for the Messianic Jews in Rome that believe that the works of the law are needed for righteousness. And I love that Paul quotes Psalm 32 here. And this is where I said um, at the beginning of this episode that Paul just does so many cool stuff, so much cool stuff with the scripture that it just makes Romans the best book ever. So Paul is quoting Psalm 32 verses 1 through 2. And the original Old Testament version of Psalm 32, 1 through 2 is this. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those who record the or who whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. So that that's basically what Paul said. Like it's almost word for word what Paul said. 
except for the very last part of Psalm 32, verse 2. Paul doesn't quote that in his letter to Rome. That's interesting. Why does Paul leave off the last part, the last part that says whose lives are lived in complete honesty? You would think that's important, and it's not like he's just leaving off a, you know, a different verse. He, he's cutting the verse in half to make his theological point, and he does this on purpose. You have to remember, Paul is writing this to a group of Jews who know their Torah. They know their Bible. They know what this scripture would have fully said, and they would have clued in on the fact that Paul left this out, and he did it to make a theological message. So this is interesting. Okay, so let's look at the original version of Psalm 32, and let's see what it requires of those whose record is cleared of sin. Because in verse 2, it says, Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. But what Paul says is, Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of sin. He does not mention that those people's lives have to be lived in complete honesty. Why is that? Because under the law, we are all found guilty because the law exposes our sin. Under the law, you would have to live in complete honesty. But this is why Paul leaves it out, because we're not under the law anymore. He's leaving this out to show the Jewish believers that through Jesus, who fulfilled the law, our sins are forgiven regardless of if we live our lives in complete honesty, regardless of if our perfection or individual righteousness is good enough to fulfill what the law required. This is huge. This is so slick of Paul. He leaves this out so that when they read this, they go, wait. So our lives don't have to be perfect in order to have our record of sin cleared? And Paul's like, yes, exactly. Why? Because Jesus did that for you. Nobody was able to perfectly live out the law except for Jesus. And so since he fulfilled it, since he already paid for your sins, it's no longer necessary that you have to live perfectly in accordance to the law in order for your sins to be forgiven. That's the message that Paul is trying to give them. That's so awesome. I, oh, I love Romans. Okay, verse 9. Now, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for the uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, we have been saving, saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. This whole idea that Paul is laying out here is to show the Jewish believers that their own father, Father Abraham, the OG, Abraham was made right with God without even having the law, without even being circumcised up to that point. The very thing that they're, that they're arguing with the Gentile believers in Rome about, Paul is saying, yo, Abraham was already justified before the law, before he got circumcised. And how can that be? 
How can that be? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 2 how Abraham was able to be justified without the law. Abraham knew right from wrong. He knew to trust God before the law was formally given to Moses. We hear about this in in Romans chapter 2 in uh, verse 15 when Paul is talking about the Gentiles and and the fact that they don't physically have the law that God wrote out because it wasn't for them. But Paul says that for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Paul affirms that the way to salvation and righteousness does not have to be by following the law. But that doesn't give a pass to the to the people who were not Jewish. It doesn't give a pass to the Gentiles because they still had the moral law of God written on their hearts. But Paul sets this up in a way, and this is the genius of Paul. Paul, Paul is a smart dude. If y'all haven't noticed, this is the genius of Paul. He sets this up in a way that doesn't allow the Jewish believers to hold on to their um to their legalism in a way of the law. It, it doesn't allow the Jewish believers to, on one hand, criticize the Gentile believers for not being circumcised and not following the law, while also on the other hand, um, continuing to to praise Abraham for being their father. Paul's not going to allow them to get away with that type of hypocrisy. It's almost like Paul is saying this. Paul is saying, yo, Abraham is our father, right? And the Jewish, the Jewish believers say, yeah, <laughs> duh, of course. And then Paul say, okay, so we agree that the scriptures say Abraham was righteous before God, right? Like he just quoted it. And the Jew would say, yeah, yeah, it does. It's right there in the text. And Paul will say, and Abraham was righteous before God, before the law, and circumcision was even a thing, right? Like, like Abraham was righteous before God, and that was before he even had the law or circumcision, correct? And the Jew would be like, yes, c- correct, yeah, 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 you're right. And then Paul would reply with what he says in verse 11. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith. And that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous, even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith, but have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. Paul is doing some theological jujitsu. But he is simply breaking down the same scripture that everyone else has. He, he's just, he's walking them through the same books of the Bible that, that they had. And he's helping them understand that, yo, Abraham was righteous before the law and before circumcision. And circumcision was just a way of showing that faith. Paul's trying to get them to see that following Jesus and not following the law, it doesn't clash with their Old Testament beliefs. It goes hand in hand with the same Old Testament that they've been reading. So if Abraham was counted righteous before circumcision, which was an outward sign of a covenant with God, then it follows that these Gentile believers in Rome 
can be counted righteous too. That's what he's trying to get these Jewish believers to see. And Paul setting it up, like I said before, that if you deny that, if you deny that these Gentile believers can be found righteous without following the law and being circumcised, then in effect, you would be denying that Abraham could. And clearly, that's not something that they're going to do. Paul is showing them that circumcision was not a precursor to faith. Circumcision was an outward sign of a faith they already had. It was an outward sign. That's what Paul's trying to get them to see. It's not required to be found righteous in the eyes of God. So verse 13, clearly God's promise to give the whole earth to Abraham and his descendants was based not on his obedience to God's law, but on a right relationship with God that comes by faith. If God's promise is only for those who obey the law, then faith is not necessary and the promise is pointless. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. We need to understand the promise and and how God's promise works. See, God's promise to give Abraham a son and be a father of many nations was not dependent on his works or unfailing obedience. Abraham messed up a lot. Read through Genesis. Abraham messed up a lot. But the promise was not dependent on his actions. Because if it was, it wouldn't be a promise. What kind of promise would that be? How would that paint God if God gave a promise and he just took it away the second someone messed up? That's not what a promise is. And if that was what a promise is, we wouldn't be able to call it a promise. It'd be more like a paycheck. It'd be more like a paycheck, like God was just paying Abraham his dues for following his law perfectly. But that's not what happened. We need to understand, not only for understanding the biblical narrative, but also understanding how God works in our life, we need to understand that God's promises are not conditional. His promises are not broken. It does not matter how many times you mess up. God's promise will never be broken. Just think of all the promises that God has made throughout the Bible and all the times that the, that the promise receivers, the people that received the promise, would mess up, sin, like royally screw up and do harm to others even. But the promise that God gave still stood. God gave promises to those who were righteous And they were righteous because of their faith in him, not in their ability to do good. One thing I want to point out, too, is verse 15. This was an interesting one to me. It took me a while to understand what Paul was really saying, um, because it might have you thinking. I'm going to read this again, just in case you forgot. Verse 15 says, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Okay, so this might have you thinking, well. If the Gentiles weren't given the law, right? Because the law was given specifically to the Israelites, to the Jewish people. So if the law wasn't given to the Gentiles, then that means that there's nothing that we can do wrong, right? Because Paul does say where there is no law, there's no transgression. And we technically weren't given the law. So is that a free pass to to just do whatever we want because there's no transgression? 
Well, if you read this verse in isolation, I, I guess we'd have no choice but to assume that. But it's a good thing that responsible Bible studiers don't just read a certain verse in isolation. You have to take in account the whole context. And this is where we would go back to what Paul said in Romans 2, that the fact that Gentiles, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. They have a moral law written on their hearts. What Paul is saying here is that no one has an excuse to do evil. Because even if you weren't given the written law as an Israelite, you still have God's moral law written on your heart. But I think what Paul is really getting at is that if these Jews wanted to continue to be justified by the law of Moses, if they, if, if they wanted to continue to have the law be front and center and, and impose it on these Gentile believers in Rome, then Paul is saying that there would be wrath and transgression. Why? Why is that? Because all men fall short of the glory of God. That is just a basic human truth. And the only one to ever live a life that was blameless in the eyes of the law and to fulfill that law was Jesus Christ. And if Jesus fulfilled the law, why would we want to be held to its rules? and its standards that illuminate our sins, that just, that just blow up our sins on a billboard and say, hey, here they are, world. Why would you want to be held to that standard? And Paul is saying that if you live to honor Jesus Christ, then there is no law, no law that you can transgress and be found guilty under because Jesus already paid that price for you. And, and the whole message that Paul is trying to get us to see here in chapter 4 is that our standard is now Jesus and not the law. So that is the breakdown of Romans 4 verses 1 through 15. I hope y'all enjoyed this scripture study. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I actually had a lot of fun with this. And I will catch y'all next week. We're going to finish out Romans 4. And it's going to be a blast. All right. Peace out.